0: John von Neumann was perhaps the most intelligent person who has ever lived. Born in Hungary to a landowning Jewish family, Dr. von Neumann was a friend and countryman to Leo Szilard, the scientist who first conceived the nuclear chain reaction involving neutrons, and who, with Einstein, wrote the letter of urgency to President Roosevelt, prompting him to begin the Manhattan Project. The stories of Dr. von Neumann's intelligence border on the legendary. As a 12-year-old boy, John held a discussion with a professor of history about the professor's specialization, the Byzantine Empire. After his conversation with the 12-year-old John, the professor walked away and later admitted that the boy knew more about the Byzantine Empire than he did. Later, as an adult, Dr. von Neumann's intelligence was downright intimidating to those around him. One of his colleagues had seen Dr. von Neumann entertaining and interacting with his children, easily adjusting to their level of conversation. The scientist later wondered if John merely did that with everyone, stooping to their level of understanding in the same way that an adult might simplify his conversation to speak with a small child. Another scientist once remarked that he had seen no better evidence of otherworldly intelligence than the existence of someone like John von Neumann. John could have chosen any path in life and would have probably excelled there, but he chose mathematics. Dr. von Neumann could perform complicated arithmetic in his head and perform mental calculations, like summing infinite series, all in his head. He could crack many previously unsolved puzzles with the power of his thought. Like his friend Leo Szilard, due to his Jewish heritage, John von Neumann was forced to flee from his native country of Hungary and became a refugee in the United States. Like so many of these refugee scientists, he joined the Manhattan Project, where the project was able to put his gift towards calculating the complicated hydrodynamics of the nuclear explosion. The hydrodynamics problem he was assigned to calculate involved famously difficult math problems and described the hot, churning plasma that appeared immediately following nuclear detonation a swirling, chaotic torrent of particles so hot that the electrons were torn away from their atoms, forming charged ions that followed twisting, whirling pathways. To solve the problems, Dr. von Neumann employed innumerable mathematical techniques, tricks, and approximations in the design of the atomic bombs. In the end, the Trinity Test proved that his brilliance, along with that of the other scientists, was sufficient for the task. But after World War II, these Manhattan Project scientists turned their attention to the next step of nuclear weapons technology, the hydrogen bomb, which used nuclear fusion on the order of 100 times more powerful than the fission reactions in Fat Man and Little Boy nuclear bombs. Dr. von Neumann tried to apply his magnificent intellect to once again calculate the complex hydrodynamics of the nuclear plasma, now 100 times more energetic than before. This time, Due to the higher energies involved. His brilliant mathematical techniques, tricks, and approximations did not work. Even John von Neumann's intelligence was insufficient to the task. So the scientists at Los Alamos tried a different approach. When one cannot solve a difficult mathematical equation analytically, it is often possible to solve the problem numerically. That is, by writing down the requisite numbers and performing thousands of additions, subtractions, and multiplications in a carefully designed algorithm through which one might, after much effort, obtain an approximation to the answer. Then Los Alamos hired hundreds and hundreds of people to write down and perform thousands, maybe even millions, of arithmetic calculations by hand. They had a job title. These people were called computers. Now I'm proud to say though people almost always laugh when I tell them, that my great aunt Beverly was a computer as a young woman during World War II. She didn't work on nuclear calculations, but performed other computing calculations for the military, perhaps having to do with ballistics, cryptography. So the scientists hired armies of intelligent people to crunch numbers all day, every day, trying to develop a new hydrogen bomb design, hoping that this new design indicated a nuclear explosion that used its fuel efficiently and wouldn't fizzle out with a low explosive yield. The computers, who were actually people, got to work. And maybe a few weeks later, the scientists could examine their results. Though time and again, they saw that those weeks had been wasted, for the initial designs were all duds. Then they heard about the work being done in Britain by a certain mathematician named Alan Turing who had invented a machine capable of performing numerical calculations automatically. John von Neumann especially became interested in this new electronic computer. With Dr. von Neumann's help, the Americans set to work building their own Turing machine, which they named ENIAC, which was as large as an entire room and could perform calculations as quickly as two or three hundred humans working by hand. With the construction of ENIAC, hydrogen bomb design progress surged forward and the American military soon had a new style of nuclear bombs. The first test yielded a 10 megaton explosion, 500 times more explosive power than was released by Fat Man. Although Dr. Von Neumann enjoyed great scientific success for the rest of his life, like many but not all of the scientists of the Manhattan Project, Dr. Von Neumann experienced crippling guilt later in his life role that he played in designing bombs that ended so many lives in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. On his deathbed, John von Neumann was in great spiritual distress. Despite his overwhelming intellectual brilliance, perhaps greater than any human had ever possessed or any has possessed since, he could not discern the answer to questions of the transcendent. He was also saddled with guilt for his role in the bombings his soul could find no peace, so to say, and the approach of death terrified him. Knowing that it was their last chance to get his assistance, the military continued to pester him with mathematical questions on his deathbed, even as his friends tried to comfort him. John von Neumann, perhaps the most gifted mind of the 20th century, passed into eternity in 1957. I hope that he rests in peace. e is equal m c square showed that very small amount of mass may be converted into a very large amount of energy december 7 1941 a date which will live in infamy 200,000 Japanese people perished from the atomic bombs at the end of World War II, 140,000 in Hiroshima and 60,000 in Nagasaki. The war weariness in Japan and the humiliation of unconditional surrender made the Japanese into cooperative former enemies propaganda generated by the Japanese imperial government had convinced Japanese civilians that if Japan were defeated, the Americans would brutalize and slaughter the Japanese people, much as the Japanese actually did to the peoples they themselves conquered. Aside from a few isolated exceptions, this was not the case, and the Americans generally treated their defeated Japanese foes honorably. First of all, after intense deliberation, victorious army general Douglas MacArthur chose to spare the life of Emperor Hirohito in exchange for a photo-op of the two of them. While the request was scandalous and degrading for the Emperor, it was perhaps the first major act of American magnanimity in Japan. Following this, the Emperor spoke to his people over radio, announcing the abdication of his authority and of his divine status, relegating himself as nothing more than a mere man, a fellow citizen, Japan. With the old government of Japan dissolved, Douglas MacArthur imposed martial law on the defeated country. He became the first non-Japanese shogun, a Japanese word translated as warlord of Japan. The Japanese cities and countryside lay in ruins, and despite their admirable work ethic and perfectionism, it would be many decades before Japan would pull itself out of poverty. The United States helped it to do so. The Americans built hospitals and schools all across Japan. After several years, a democratic government of Japan was assembled and Douglas MacArthur stepped down from his position as military dictator. So great was the Japanese admiration and gratitude of General MacArthur that they actually threw a parade in his honor as he left. I've also heard stories told by Americans who visited the Japanese countryside many decades after the war And that old Japanese people would occasionally run up to them, fall down on their knees and thank them profusely that America had treated Japan so kindly after the war, contrary to their former expectations. Today, Japan is one of America's closest allies in the Far East. After the end of World War II, most of the scientists returned to their former lives and former careers. However, a few stayed behind to develop the next stage of nuclear weapons technology, the hydrogen bomb. As I mentioned before, the hydrogen bomb relies on nuclear fusion, as opposed to the nuclear fission used in the detonation of the atomic bombs, Little Boy and Fat Man. When a uranium or plutonium atom undergoes fission, it splits into two pieces and releases an enormous amount of energy, as we've already heard. However, when two hydrogen atoms do the exact opposite and come together, merge, and form a nucleus of helium, that is known as fusion, and it releases a hundred times more energy than fission. It is essentially the same overall nuclear reaction that the sun and stars use to produce energy. You may be wondering, wait, how could the hydrogen bomb use fusion? I thought that nuclear fusion power hasn't been discovered yet. And while that is true, in order to be safely used for a source of electrical power, we do not yet know how to release fusion in a gradual, controlled manner. But as for a bomb, we do know how to release the massive energy of fusion all at once when creating a thermonuclear explosion. The Americans at Los Alamos finished the first hydrogen fusion bomb in 1952, and its mechanism contained two stages. The first stage was a miniaturized version of the gadget, or the fat man design, a plutonium core surrounded by lenses, wedges of conventional explosives, which formed a sphere about the size of a beach ball. The second stage, which sat directly below the first, was a thick cylinder composed mostly of lithium deuteride. Lithium deuteride is a very lightweight crystalline salt that contains deuterium, or heavy hydrogen, the ingredients needed for a fusion reaction. The first stage is basically an atomic bomb, a fat man-sized explosion that acts as a detonator, generating enough heat and energy for the secondary stage, which explodes with much more power. The first hydrogen bomb test yielded 10 megatons, 500 times more energy than was released over Nagasaki. Then the Soviets detonated their first hydrogen bomb in August 1953, barely a year after the Americans' first hydrogen bomb, and years or decades before the shocked Americans had thought possible. Of course, immediately following the end of World War II, The world had polarized under the leadership of two remaining world superpowers, the United States versus the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics. Stalin, the leader of the Soviets, had not put many resources toward the development of nuclear weapons during the war, doubting that nuclear technology held any feasibility or usefulness. The Trinity Test and the bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki immediately opened his eyes. Stalin's priorities flipped and the Soviet Union became hell-bent on obtaining the bomb. Thanks to many spies which had been placed in the Manhattan Project, the Soviets obtained hordes of designs, documents, theory, data, and other information generated by the American and refugee scientists of the Manhattan Project. Then Stalin gathered the greatest scientists from all the Soviet-controlled nations. The Soviet scientists were given their mission To use the stolen Manhattan Project research to build nuclear weapons. The scientists were told that they would be given any resource they would need to build a bomb, and if they failed, they would be executed. With their lives at stake, the Soviet scientists built their bombs. And from 1953, the two nations began a nuclear arms race. At first, the nuclear bombs needed to be dropped from aircraft, much like Fat Man and Little Boy. This was a much less precarious situation, since one side would need to establish air supremacy over any potential target. That is, all the enemy fighters would need to be shot down within an area to ensure that the bombers carrying the highly valuable and expensive thermonuclear bombs could deliver their payloads without first being shot down on the way. Establishing air supremacy would have taken a great deal of time and effort. However, both sides soon developed a new invention that eliminated the need for air supremacy, the ICBM intercontinental ballistic missile. ICBMs were capable of being launched into a suborbital trajectory, meaning that they could fly into space and deliver a hydrogen bomb payload with an explosive power of up to 400 kilotons each. That is an explosive power equivalent to 20 Fat Man bombs. These ICBM missiles could fly halfway around the world, putting any target on the surface of the planet within their reach. No place on Earth was safe. If these arsenals were ever launched, the entire surface of the Earth could be destroyed by nuclear fire several times over. The largest hydrogen bomb ever built was called Tsar Bomba, translated from Russian as the Tsar Bomb. It contained an explosive power equivalent to 50 megatons, with 10 times the explosive power of all the conventional explosives used in the entirety of World War II. When the Tsar Bomba was tested on a Russian island in the Arctic Ocean in the year 1961, the mushroom cloud it produced reached a height of 65,000 meters, an altitude which is practically in space. The Soviet Union was, of course, Communist. An important paradigm of Marxist communism alleges that every nation of the world is destined to experience a working-class uprising, leading inevitably to a communist system which would, in time, span the entire globe from east to west. The Soviet Union, as the most powerful post-war communist nation, followed a mandate to evangelize communism elsewhere in the world, to seed the sparks of revolution and to assist Marxist rebels with the weapons and supplies they would need to overthrow the established governments of nations, and to impose their Marxist vision, spreading communism from nation to nation. However, this fervor of conquest held by the Soviets came along with a burning complex of insecurity and inferiority. World War II had killed multitudes of Russian soldiers, and had destroyed vast areas of the Russian motherland. While the americans had lost far fewer soldiers and had experienced very little destruction within american territory additionally the americans lived prosperous abundant lives and american citizens lived and moved freely in contrast most soviet citizens lived in continuous poverty and hunger and only an unrelenting system of terror could preserve the dominance of the soviet state over its people this combination of ambition and insecurity made the soviets belligerent and provocative on the world stage. A huge army of Russian infantry, artillery, and tanks sat poised any day to come pouring over the Iron Curtain and crush the defenses of the free nations of Europe. The Russians continually sought to expand communism by fomenting and supporting Marxist uprisings in East Asia, Africa, and Latin America. With the exile of the Chinese nationalist government to the island of Taiwan, The Chinese communist government of Mao Zedong seized control of enormous swaths of territory in the Far East mainland. Something prevented the communist powers from exercising their conventional military might and ideological influence to conquer the entirety of Europe and Asia as a first step towards an attempt to subjugate the entire world under communism. Arguably, the main thing that prevented them was the nuclear bomb. In a previous episode, we've already heard about the doctrine of mutually assured destruction, or MAD, which asserts that the only reasonable and reliable defense against an enemy with such a powerful weapon as a nuclear bomb is to already have one of your own. The MAD doctrine asserts that if both you and your enemy have possession and capability to use a nuclear weapon, then neither of you would ever dare to use it. Because if you ever used it to destroy your enemy, in the time it took you to deploy it, your enemy, or his allies, would have enough time to use his own to destroy you, and vice versa. Therefore, the Mad Doctrine predicts that if both sides have the bomb, then a terrifying, fragile balance exists between you and your enemy. Neither can act without risking the destruction of everyone. The Mad Doctrine only works if both sides are rational enough to value their own preservation more than the destruction of the other. Additionally, both sides must believe that the other is willing to use the bomb if pushed hard enough. This terrifying stalemate of the Mad Doctrine smolders in the background of the entire history of the Cold War. Therefore, in the aftermath of World War II, the Western democracies formed the Alliance of NATO, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. As articulated by Lord Ismay in 1952, NATO had been formed to achieve three main goals in the post-war age. Goal number one, keep Germany down. The Western democracies realized that the nation of Germany, as a main belligerent and instigator of both world wars, contained within its culture and in its nature an aggressive spirit that sought to dominate the other nations of Europe and seemed unable to appreciate the right of other nations to govern themselves and to freely choose their own destinies. Therefore, after Germany's total and unquestionable defeat at the hands of the allies, NATO would occupy Germany, both to provide for Germany's protection, but also to prevent it from regaining its previous level of power and to provide deterrence against the rise of yet another German Reich. Goal number two, keep communism contained. After World War II, many once free and independent nations, such as Poland, Czechoslovakia, and Hungary, whose freedom had been taken by the Nazis, did not experience liberation. In unspeakable tragedy, these nations changed hands from one tyranny to another and found themselves behind the advancing wall of the Soviet army, in the iron grip of communism. For decades, these nations would experience not freedom, but continued oppression, by an occupying superpower. In the post-war polarization of the world, the Western democracies realized that Marxism, in its insistence to evangelize its ideology, would seek to expand and weaker nations would fall against this pressure, one by one, like dominoes. The leaders of the free nations of the world realized that the Soviets, the Chinese, and Marxist sympathizers around the world would seek to topple governments through violent uprisings, bloody revolutions, and insidious cultural influence. Therefore, the Western democracies knew that in the coming Cold War, drastic, difficult efforts must be taken to prevent and deter the spread of communism, whether diplomatically, politically, or militarily, at potentially great cost, while ensuring that the world would not be destroyed by a nuclear holocaust. Goal number three, keep the Americans in. Many of my foreign friends are surprised to learn that America is, instinctively, an isolationist nation. This was true for most of American history. Before World War I, America would rarely involve itself in matters outside of the Western Hemisphere, unless severely provoked. The American presidents during both World Wars, Woodrow Wilson and Franklin Roosevelt, were at first unable to overcome enormous political reluctance to get involved. For instance, it was only after the ship Lusitania was sunk by the Germans during World War I and the attack by the Japanese on Pearl Harbor during World War II that the American public opinion was sufficiently mobilized to join these wars. Because, you see, one interesting feature of democracies that is important to remember is that democracies rarely go to war. And if they do, it is overwhelmingly likely to be in response to an enemy's attack. Also, a democracy will be unable to fight a prolonged war. This is because democracies are ultimately controlled by their citizens, who tend to be so prosperous that the citizens do not like expending their lives and the lives of their family members for frivolous wars. But the hard lesson learned by the Americans after World War I taught them that they cannot simply leave a post-war order to stand on its own. After World War I, the Americans left the League of Nations, and it ultimately collapsed the democratic Weimar Republic of Germany, failed. Additionally, though this is no fault of the Americans, the Allied Empire of Russia fell to a Marxist uprising, and many disgruntled, impoverished nations of Europe turned to fascism in the aftermath of the Great War. Therefore, by washing their hands of the whole matter, the Americans delayed, not prevented, their involvement in another world war. And because of their delay, their reluctance would extract a high price From the Americans in blood and treasure. Therefore, the strong, mostly unscathed USA became the leader of the NATO alliance, as well as its greatest sponsor and benefactor. Through the Marshall Plan, the USA leveraged its prosperous and abundant economy to pay to help the ruined nations of Europe, including Germany and Italy, to rebuild and not descend into poverty once more. The Americans maintained a military presence within Europe, both to prevent another rise of fascism and also to deter the advancements and provocations of the communists. As problems developed around the world, and as the communists spread their mischief in various places, the USA became the main defender of the free world. Recognizing the tendency of democracies to ensure peace, NATO and the Americans promoted democratic forms of government among the other nations of the world, and opposed infestations of communism wherever it began to take root all under the constant threat of nuclear annihilation. The utterly and completely amazing thing about these goals was that ultimately they worked. The time spanning the Cold War was frightening, difficult, and expensive, but compared to World War II, or the hypothetical scenario of a nuclear hot war, it has been a time of unprecedented peace. We've had costly, unfortunate conflicts during the Cold War, such as the Korean War and the Vietnam War. I wish that these wars had not cost the lives that they had. I also recognize that the American spirit was severely traumatized by these events, especially the Vietnam War. Though history could have been far, far worse. Better yet, it is clear by now, that the three goals of NATO were largely achieved by the end of the Cold War. Germany was kept down. For the past 75 years, we have not had another world war, and Germany has not instigated any conflict in Europe. In fact, most of Europe has been without war for this entire time since World War II, which is a totally unprecedented span of peace in European history. In the midst of all of this, Germany's protection was guaranteed, East and West Germany were eventually reunited, and the German people, like their neighbors, now live in abundance and prosperity. Communism was contained. Nearly everywhere that communism began to take root, it was opposed, and usually defeated, by the West. The Soviets never did pour over the Iron Curtain to invade Western Europe. The Chinese nationalist government maintained its independence on the island of Taiwan. Although communism afflicted terrible atrocities upon millions of lives in places like Cambodia, Vietnam, and Laos, the spread of communism was halted in Southeast Asia. Wherever communism sprung up in the Western Hemisphere, such as in Cuba, it was either stamped out or contained. Then in the late 1980s and the early 1990s, after decades of domination over Asia and Eastern Europe, the Soviet empire began to crumble away. Since the 1950s, the Berlin Wall was the concrete symbol of the Iron Curtain itself. In 1989, the people of East and West Germany cut a hole in the Berlin Wall, and it came down. One by one, the nations of Eastern Europe, such as Czechoslovakia, Poland, Hungary, Ukraine, Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia, and many others, began to fragment away from the Soviet Empire, gaining their independence, often without firing a single shot. China also began to implement more free-market capitalist approaches to its economics, and as many in the West hoped, began a trajectory towards liberalization. The Soviet Union fell, and the Russian government itself discarded the communist system and began to explore democracy. The Americans stayed in. With America's assistance through programs like the Marshall Plan, the countries of the world ruined by World War II began to rebuild. The Americans maintained a military presence in many places across the world, not as conquerors, but as guarantors against the resurgence of fascism and the spread of communism. The powerful American navy spread itself across the oceans of the world to suppress piracy, deter belligerence, and protect the fragile, valuable trade lanes between the continents. At the insistence of the Americans, the British dismantled their empire in a peaceful manner, and many peoples under their dominion took back their independence without bloodshed. In the second half of the 20th century and in the first two decades of the 21st century, quality of life in our world increased precipitously. Thanks to the protection of free trade by the American Navy and thanks to multiple technological revolutions in the West, economic prosperity spread across the world. Diseases were eradicated and an unprecedented number of people were lifted out of poverty. Did the Americans always act honorably? Not always. Did the Americans make mistakes? Yes, sometimes they did. Nevertheless, I believe that Americans generally acted with good intent, at great sacrifice to themselves, in hopes that their country and the rest of the free world would thrive in peace. For as much evil as there is in this world, there is also much good to overcome that evil. yet many challenges for the world remain. After the collapse of the Soviet Union, some people assumed that the world would enter a golden age. With the premier communist state dead and gone, they thought it was only inevitable that the world would liberalize, turn to democracy, and take steps towards permanent world peace. Sadly, this perhaps naive assumption does not appear to be correct. Although the three original goals of NATO were achieved by the year 1990, since that time, the international landscape of the world has changed. In many ways, those achievements are being actively undermined. Germany is no longer poor, ruined, and subjugated. It has arisen to prominence within the European Union. Germany is not a fascist country at this time, thank goodness, but in some ways, German political and economic influence has come to dominate Europe in a way that Hitler's conquests never managed to do. The European Union made loans to nations in southern Europe, such as Greece, and when they could not pay back those loans, the rest of the EU, with Germany at the helm, imposed painful and punishing austerity on the debtor nations. When the conflicts in Syria displaced a huge number of migrants, it precipitated a crisis influx of refugees to Europe. The European Union, with Germany at the helm, demanded that the nations of Eastern Europe accept vast numbers of migrants against their will. The British democratically affirmed Brexit. Britain voted to depart from the European Union and seized its independence back from non-British bureaucrats in faraway Brussels. The European Union, with Germany at the helm, obstructed Brexit at every opportunity, intensifying the difficulty that the British would experience, retaking control of their own destiny. Among the nations of Europe, that are polled regarding their opinions of Americans, Germans now rank among the people who like Americans the least. Worldwide, fascism has, arguably, cropped up in other forms. Many nations in the Middle East, for instance, impose systems of radical authoritarianism with a warlike military emphasis, as well as the unification of governments with businesses and industry in a manner that is highly reminiscent of fascism. It appears that Germany and the tendency of some nations toward fascism are no longer being held down. With the Soviet Union gone, violent uprisings and bloody revolutions are no longer sponsored with vast quantities of money and weapons, since the remaining communist power of China does not seem intent on evangelizing its particular brand of Marxism as the Soviets were. However, though revolutions and uprisings are not being directly promoted, The effect of Marxist ideology on cultural influence and other insidious manipulations still remains. Many lessons of the 20th century were not learned, and no small amount of sympathy for Marxism still remains, even in America and other Western democracies. It appears that communism is breaking loose from its containment. After the fall of the Soviet Union, the purpose of NATO became unclear but remained intact as aggressive powers arose in different places of the world to cause trouble, whether Milosevic in Serbia, bin Laden in Afghanistan, or Hussein in Iraq, or others. America was expected to rise up and punish the aggressors, even if it meant sending their boys halfway around the world to do so. For decades following World War II, the free nations of the world needed American money in order to rebuild their ruined economies and infrastructure. They needed American industry and commerce to pull them out of poverty and American military to guarantee their security and the protection of global free trade. But by now, those nations are no longer in ruins and the peoples of many nations of Europe enjoy a higher level of wealth and quality of life than the average American. Globalism and outsourcing have hollowed out American manufacturing and relatively little industry is still done within the United States. Americans struggle with stagnant wages, increasing costs of living, and diminishing opportunities to realize the American dream. Worst of all, American soldiers are obligated to expend their lives fighting perpetual conflicts elsewhere in the globe. It is not a question of whether those are worthy fights, but the conflicts are often highly morally asymmetrical, and the other nations of the West often do not even lift a finger to help and show profound lack of gratitude for the sacrifice of American money and lives spent and the Americans themselves have become weary of interminable wars. I've mentioned before that America is naturally an isolationist country. It was only to avoid a third world war that for the past 75 years the Americans went against their natural inclinations and chose to remain involved in the affairs of the Eastern Hemisphere. But now that many of the nations who benefited from American protections are both wealthy and ungrateful, the Americans feel inclined to leave them to fend for themselves and since the globalism and free trade protected by the American military seem to continue to the detriment of American workers, industry, and commerce, the Americans are beginning to express a strong desire to pull back from their global commitments and tend to their own problems for a while. It appears that keeping the Americans in may not hold true for much longer. In closing, let us make our final analysis of the use of atomic bombs against the Empire of Japan. Personally, I believe that the use of atomic bombs against Japan was the least bad option available to the Allies at the end of the war. The alternative of an amphibious invasion of Japan would have resulted in at least an order of magnitude or loss of American and Japanese lives. Those who advocate an eternal blockade of Japanese holdings neglect to realize that a blockade would enable the continuation of the suffering and deaths of millions of non-Japanese civilians in Japanese captured territories, such as in China and Korea. It is also likely, under this scenario, that even more Japanese citizens would have starved to death. It is important to note that the ultimate goal of American leadership was not just victory, but a lasting peace. Victory without lasting peace would just ensure another world war sooner or later. The long peace between the Japanese and Americans for more than two generations now offers ample evidence that the hard decisions made by American leadership in the latter days of the war were indeed justified. Clearly our generation has many challenges in front of us. However, there is no doubt that we have enjoyed almost a century of peace thanks to the sacrifices of the greatest generation. While the problems we are facing now are challenging, they are still nothing compared to the problems facing the world in the middle of the 20th century. We cannot imagine the suffering of many, many millions during that war, including the sufferings of our own American soldiers, our grandfathers, and their friends. We cannot imagine the difficulty of the hard decisions that needed to be made by the Allied leaders, choosing the least of many evils, knowing that all options would result in catastrophe. I believe that we are in no position to judge them. It is instead our place to be grateful and to look to ourselves. How can we be the best stewards of the gifts passed down to us and how best to spend our own time on earth? Our grandparents served their role in history and we must serve ours to the best of our abilities. Because if our grandparents were in any way courageous, resilient and heroic, then we as their descendants carry that same courage, resilience, and heroism within ourselves. Thanks for listening. The Atomic Bomb Podcast was written, presented, and edited by me, Blaine Vitopka. Special thanks for edits by Gary Vitopka. Original logo and banner by Inova Enterprise. Additional credits and licensing information can be found in the description. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider engaging in further discussion or making a donation at my thinkspot.com page. Username Elvatapka, spelled L-V-O-T-A-P-K-A. You can also donate or subscribe at buymeacoffee.com slash L-V-O-T-A-P-K-A. Copyright Lane Vatapka, 2021.